Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. As we come to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and the second half of this chapter, we come to the end of this first letter of Paul to young Pastor Timothy. And I I often ask when we come to the end of these letters, what would you leave someone with? Uh, When you write a letter, or who writes letters anymore? When you write an email, when we text each other, when we message each other, if you knew this was the last time I'm going to talk to you for a while, maybe, as far as Paul knew, the last time I'll write to you ever, what would you leave young Timothy with? What does Paul leave us with? More importantly, what does the Holy Spirit leave us as a church As pastors, as leaders, what does the Holy Spirit leave us with at the end of this letter? What does the church of the 21st century, what does First Baptist Church Dumas, as we're in the 21st century, need to hear? What do we need to remember? What is the one motivating factor that we need to keep in mind as a church, as believers, as leaders, what needs to drive us in our Christian life, and our holiness, and our growth as a church, our growth as people? What more motivating factor is there than this statement? The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. That's a motivating reality for Timothy. It's the motivating reality behind the entire New Testament, if you pay attention. Jesus is coming. The Lord is coming. I thought about another imperative in uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24, when the author tells us to stir one another up to good works. Consider how to love and to stir one another up into good works. And then verse 25 tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves. And then what does it say? And all the more as you see the day approaching. Not just the morning, not just the next day, not just someday, but the day of the Lord's appearing. When Jesus returns, keep stirring each other up to love. Keep stirring each other up to love and good works. Keep meeting together and all the more as you see the day of the Lord approaching. In light of that day, the author tells us to stir one another up. Paul wants to stir Timothy up. He wants to stir us up by the Holy Spirit. Church, the days that we're living in are dark. The days are dark. The war is on, and it's raging all around us. Jesus is coming. And I think if Paul were to leave us with one thing as he leaves Timothy with, it would be this. Stand and fight. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 11, to the end. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things... Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. 
I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. This is God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Let's ask him to help us as we continue. Our God, this is your word. We bow now before you, asking you by your Holy Spirit to speak to us through what we read and what we hear here. Let your Holy Spirit move as we read, as we hear, as we listen, that unbelievers in this room might be converted and brought to faith in Christ, and that those of us who know him might be, might be strengthened in our faith, that we might learn to stand and to fight and to guard that which you've given to us. We ask you to speak now, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Number one, number one today, pursue righteousness. Pursue righteousness. As we come into chapter, the middle part of chapter 6, verse 11, we're kind of jumping into the middle of a thought. Uh, really, all of chapter 6 could be one sermon, but my sermons are already long enough, and so you don't want me to preach an entire chapter like that in one sitting. So we chopped it in half. I chopped it in half. And as we look at the beginning of verse 11, you hear this call from Paul to Timothy to flee these things. Well, first he says, you, O man of God, you, O man of God. We focused on a lot of stuff in this letter, and Paul has been pointing Timothy every way to the widows, to the orphans, to the elders, to the members, to the qualifications for deacons and pastors, to everything. And now he says, now, Timothy, I want to talk to you. He's been given Timothy instructions. He's been giving Timothy directions and commands. Teach these things. Practice these things. Command these things. Do these things, Timothy. But now, Timothy, you... And he says, oh, man of God. That oh we have twice in this passage, if you notice. Oh is what we call a vocative. It's a calling out of someone. It's pretty rare in the New Testament to see this, but we have it here twice. Oh, Timothy. Oh, man of God. And Paul refers to Timothy as the man of God. If you pay attention as we go through First and Second Kings or any of the prophets, really, in the Old Testament, you'll know that was a designation for the prophet of God. That was a designation for someone who was called and set aside to be God's mouthpiece to God's people. Go get the man of God. Go find the man of God, the prophet, 
the spokesperson for God. Go find him and ask him. And so we come to the end of this letter and Paul points to Timothy, this young pastor, as that. God's mouthpiece for God's people. As for you, O man of God, you hear Paul's fatherly respect for Timothy. He addresses him in this high, exalted way. You're the man of God. You are God's prophet. You are God's mouthpiece, Timothy. There's respect. There's honor there for this young pastor. But there's also the weight of the charge. Do you feel that weight? Do you feel the seriousness and the gravity that Paul is laying on Timothy using that short little phrase? Yes, there's respect. Yes, there's honor. You are God's man for God's time, for God's people. But there's a weight there too. There's a calling. There's a heaviness there for Timothy. And even as Paul empowers and honors and encourages Timothy, he also reminds him, of the heaviness of the charge and the call that is his. And what does he call him to? We come into the middle of that thought, flee these things. Well, the things we talked about last week in chapter 6, verses 2 through 10. Things like the love of money, discontentment, greed, seeking after earthly gain, materialism, wealth, money, Paul says that's what false teachers chase after. That's what false converts chase after. These things, discontentment, greed, money, earthly riches. Paul tells Timothy, though, you need to flee those things. Now, it's interesting that we've seen that phrase several times in the letter, haven't we? These things, these things, these things. But it's always been positive. Practice these things. Command these things. Teach these things. Do these things. And now we have a break in that pattern. Not pursue these things. Do not do these things. In fact, in fact, flee these things. Flee greed. Flee materialism. Flee this chasing after earthly goods and discontentment. Flee these things. But just as much as we have the negative, we do have a positive. What does he say? Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Not just the negative to flee from, but the positive to pursue and Paul lists six things here. Number one is righteousness, big uh, theological word that we could um, extrapolate and do all kinds of fun things with this morning, but we won't. Simply means justice or justness. And you could even simplify it further by saying just simply what's right. Pursue what's right, Paul, in every sphere, in every kind of way you can think of Paul to Timothy. Pursue and chase after what is right. Pursue godliness. We talked about this word. That is godwardness in your life, in your spirit, in your heart, in your attitude. Pursue these things. Pursue a godward life, a godward mind, a godward heart. He says pursue faith, trust, confidence in God, in his word, and his gospel. He says pursue love. We don't need to define that, do we? Giving of yourself affections, your passions, your compassion for other people, that feeling that we have towards other people that's supposed to play itself out in our actions of love and kindness toward them. Pursue that. Pursue steadfastness, endurance, perseverance, faithfulness in the things you've been called to. Pursue that. Gentleness, mildness, meekness, Godly strength under the control of the Holy Spirit. Now I think it's interesting that it's not just do these things, but pursue them. 
We're going to see that several times in this chapter, and the rest of this chapter sees it, take hold of it, chase after it. It's not just going to happen. You need to pursue these things. You know what to do. You have the instructions. Now pursue them. Just simply do them. And if you think this list sounds familiar, it is familiar. Paul uses this list many times. It sounds an awful lot to me like the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 through 23. That what we are to walk in is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we could keep on going with the fruits that the Spirit is supposed to produce in our lives. And we're going to see that just as much as the Spirit is the one producing them in their lives, we're supposed to also be cultivating and nourishing and chasing after and pursuing those things. The Spirit is doing it as we obey and as we pursue after those things. I think it's interesting when we think about the nature of sanctification and holiness. So often Christians can change the nature of holiness and sanctification simply into things we don't do. So if you ask old school, uh, the holiness types, what, what is holiness? They would say, well, holiness is not doing this, not doing this, not doing this, not doing this, not doing this. And understand me, that's part of it. Flee these things, right? Run away from those things. That is part of holiness. But there's more to holiness than what we don't do. The other side of holiness is what we do, how we obey, what we chase after. It's not simply what we run from. It's what we run to. It's not just the don'ts, it's the do's. Paul says in Colossians, there's this series of putting off and putting on. In fact, when we first see this glimpse of holiness as we know it, Exodus 28, 36, as, as the Lord is setting aside these pieces of furniture for the temple, he says, or the tabernacle, you're supposed to put this inscription on these pieces of furniture that says, holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. That this tabernacle, the priests, their clothes, the furniture, the people themselves are to be holy, separated from the world around them, separated from the pagan nations around them, but not just separated from them, but holy to the Lord. Separated from sin and self, but separated to God. I'm fascinated with cults and other beliefs and denominations. And, and one of the things I like to watch are stories of ex-Mormons or ex-Jehovah's Witnesses or ex-Christian scientists or Scientology. Uh, the documentary series that Leah Remini did about fleeing Scientology. All those things are fascinating to me. But it is disheartening, I have to say, when you watch an ex-Mormon's testimony of how they came out of Mormonism or how a Jehovah's Witness left the Jehovah's Witness movement or some other false teaching or ideology. It's disheartening to me as much as along the way I'm rooting for them to discover truth. I want them to find out what's wrong with Mormonism, what's wrong with Scientology, and you cheer for them as they do. But oftentimes, sadly, at the end of their realization that this movement is wrong, they don't necessarily turn to the truth. And in fact, more often than not, people coming out of a cult turn to agnosticism or atheism. And you look at that, and while you want to root for them to come out of this, they're just leaving one godless ideology for another godless ideology. So what good is it for them to not do this and not flee to God? Same thing is true of our holiness. We can check the boxes all day long about the things we don't do. 
But unless we're fleeing to God also, it's just a legalistic list of do's and don'ts. Sure you don't do this. Sure you don't do this. Sure you don't do this. But do you love God? Do you love people? As you're fleeing these things, are you fleeing to and pursuing these things? And Paul pictures this as not something that's very easy in verse 12. He says, fight the good fight. This will not be easy. This is not as simple as just turning on a switch. The old adage, let go and let God, uh, we kind of use it for our life situations. But where it comes from is this issue of sanctification and holiness. And there was a movement in England that says, no, no, no. Sanctification isn't about trying. Sanctification isn't about doing. Sanctification and growing in holiness is just kind of letting go and letting God do it. I think the Bible would argue with that. Yes, God is the one doing it, but you have to pursue. You have to flee. You have to obey. You have to follow. Paul says that here, doesn't he? As this is happening, as you're fleeing from and fleeing to, it is a fight. It's a good fight. Noble. It's worthy. That as you're fleeing from sin and fleeing to God, you are nevertheless fleeing to and running headlong into a war. Sanctification is war. The Puritan author John Owen said, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Either way, someone in your relationship within your own sinful self is going to be killing something. Either you're going to be actively warring against the sin in yourself, or that sin is going to be warring against you and someone is going to win jesus said it this way in matthew chapter 5 verse 29 that if your hand or did you start with your eye if your eye causes offense to you pluck it out for it's better to have entered into heaven with one eye and this is all euphemism right it's better to enter into paradise with one eye than to go into hell with full sight if your right hand causes offense to you if it causes you to sin chop it off It's better to enter into heaven with one hand than enter into hell with two. Jesus isn't saying, of course, that if you sin with your right hand, chop it off or pluck out your eye. It's an extreme hyperbolic euphemism to say your struggle against sin is a violent conflict within your own soul. And it is not simply let go and let God, but let's get to war against sin and the devil within me. This is all-out war against sin, against Satan, against the world. And we cheer and we rally and we watch the news and we say, yeah, it's us versus them. But what about you? What about your own heart? What about your own soul? That just as much as we're ready to stand for truth and go to war with them, what about the war that's raging in our own soul? Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. And this this should shock us coming from the apostle Paul. The same apostle who said, you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. And then we come to Philippians 2, verse 12. Put it on the screen for me. Philippians 2, verse 12. And he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And us good Baptist folks will, what did you say? 
Grace, faith, not works. And then we come here, but also work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. How about Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1? Run with endurance the race that is set before you. Flee. Run. Fight. Now, immediately after those two verses, put things in context, right, are two other verses. Just as much as Philippians 2 verse 12 tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Hebrews 2.13, the very next verse, tells us this. For it is God who is at work in you to make you willing and able to obey. You see, Paul doesn't see any tension there. We, we like to put a tension there, don't we? We like to say, no, I'm saved by grace through faith alone, apart from works, so works don't matter. That's false. That's not biblical. Paul puts them together. He has no problem. Yes, you are saved by grace through faith alone. And what Christ has done, your works add nothing to your salvation and nothing to your righteousness. Okay, now that we got that straight, now that you are saved, now that you're declared righteous by faith alone and Christ alone apart from your works, now get to work. Now work out that salvation with fear and trembling. Hebrews 12 was the same way. You run with endurance the race that is set before you. Hebrews 12 verse 2 comes immediately behind it and says what though? Keeping your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. So yes, we throw ourselves at the mercy of Jesus. We throw ourselves upon his grace. We bring nothing of ourselves into the equation. Theologians say we bring, we, we bring nothing into salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. We bring nothing. But now that we've come to Christ, now that we're filled with his spirit, now that we know him, now that we're made alive by faith in him, now run, fight, get to work. What are the prizes of this war, according to Paul? Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of of many witnesses. What is the prize? What are the spoils of this war? Take hold of eternal life. And again, you seize it. You take hold of it, but also you have been called to it. And you have been made witnesses of it by your confession. It's already yours in Christ. You have eternal life by your faith in Christ. And now Paul says what? The same thing. Work it out. You already have it. Run the race. Jesus has done it for you. What do we say now? Take hold of eternal life because it's already yours. Seize it. Run after it. That confession you originally made when you came to Christ in faith, when you were saved, when you were converted, when you asked Jesus into your heart, whatever phrase you want to use about coming to Christ in faith, when you made that confession to him, oh Lord, I'm a sinner. I believe you died and rose again for me. I come to you as Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins and bring me into your kingdom. When you made that confession and when you made that profession in believer's baptism, when you showed the world that you want to follow Christ in faith, Paul says, now keep laying hold of it 
It's not just a box that you checked that happened way back when you were a child. It's something you're still running after to this day. It's yours in Christ. It's your calling. It's your confession. Now seize it. Take hold of it. Remember whose you are. We're not talking about working in order to earn God's love or to earn his approval. But because you already have it in Christ, now live like it. Church, we're in the same war, we're in the same fight that Paul and Timothy fought against the world, against Satan, against sin, in ourselves. Listen, we have the same Lord, we have the same weapons, we have the same power, we have the same spirit. And so the question for you today is not are you equipped or are you able to be equipped? The question for you today is are you running? Are you fighting? Are you fleeing these things to pursue these things? Bottom line, are you pursuing Jesus? Are you pursuing Jesus? Take hold of what is yours in Christ. Aim there. Get in the fight. Get in the race. Pursue him. Number two, the Lord is coming. Number two, the Lord is coming. The entire message of the Bible could really be summed up in this, couldn't it? Certainly the message of the New Testament. You pay attention to Jesus' parables. What are they all about? The master coming back. What does the end of the Bible end with? Even so, come Lord Jesus. And what will Jesus find when he comes? I often think of Paul Revere's midnight ride. The British is coming. The British are coming. That was a different Paul Revere. The British is coming. This is the actual Paul Revere. The British are coming. The British are coming. The message of the New Testament is much the same, isn't it? Get ready. The Lord is coming. I want you to know that as believers today, that should be a joyful proclamation for you. As believers in Jesus, that should be something that stirs joy and love and passion. Paul says those who love his appearing because he's coming back as your savior, as your friend, and as your king. Maybe this morning that fills you with a little bit of dread and fear that Jesus is coming. Maybe you don't know where you stand with him today. Maybe your life doesn't really reflect what you say you believe. And, and so if you were face to face with the judge who knows all your secrets, maybe that fills you with a little bit of intrepidation to think that he will judge you and he will search you. Paul says in light of this, look at verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a weighty, serious charge. The second time Paul has done this kind of thing, I charge you in the presence of God. I charge you in the presence of Christ who is coming. I charge you in light of the coming of Jesus to obey and to follow. 
And he ties this all back to Jesus' confession. It's a little confusing what he says here. And in the presence of Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate made his own confession. And a lot of scholars and commentators go back and forth about what this means. What confession did Jesus make before Pontius Pilate? Was it that my kingdom is not of this world, that my kingdom is from heaven? Uh, is it the testimony that Pontius Pilate said, this is the king of the Jews? What is the testimony that we're talking about here? And let's just sum it up this way. I think all of our commentators and scholars could agree at least on this. That the confession that Jesus made before Pontius Pilate is the same confession that he made and the same confession that he lived his entire earthly life. And what was that? Complete Full obedience to his father. That before Pontius Pilate, he had the opportunity to recant. He had the opportunity to take it all back. Never mind, I'm not a king. You're Pilate, you're in charge. Caesar is Lord. Let's just forget all this ever happened. Pilate was ready to make it happen, wasn't he? But Jesus was faithful to God. Jesus was faithful to his father. He was obedient. As he was his entire life, all the way to his death on the cross and his resurrection, and now at the right hand of God the Father. And Paul says, just as faithful and just as obedient as Jesus was, Timothy, you obey the commandment I've given to you. You be faithful. You follow. You pursue. You obey. Now, Timothy had some very specific things to obey as an elder, as a pastor. He was charged to guard the flock. He was charged to feed the sheep, to fend off the goats and the wolves and the predators and the thieves. And Paul says here to obey and keep the commandment free from reproach. Going back to that, that, that qualification for elders and deacons that they should be what? Above reproach. Blameless, no charge should be able to be laid against them. Keep the commandment, Timothy, as a pastor and as a believer. And the question for you here today is, maybe you're not a pastor, you're not a minister, you're not a leader in the church or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher, though these apply to all those. You say, what is there for me to do here? Well, the question for you is, what has God called you to do? What commandments has he given you? He gave Timothy a call, he gave Timothy gifts, and he expected Timothy to be faithful to those gifts. So the question for you is, different gifts, different calling, are you nevertheless faithful? Are you obeying? Are you following? Are you pursuing? Am I pursuing? And what great motivation is there there in verse 14? <laughs> Jesus is coming. The Lord is coming when the master returns, as Jesus so often alluded to in his parables, when he returns, what will he say? Depart from me, I never knew you. Or will hopefully he say as he quotes in Matthew 25, 23, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy that has been prepared for you. Here's a sobering thought for you this morning. This is not just some earthly boss. This is not just some earthly master or Lord. Look at verses 15 and 16. When Jesus returns, he will display at the proper time he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, 
who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen nor can see. To him belongs all honor and dominion. Amen. Now Paul says, unless you forget who we're talking about. This isn't just, uh uh-oh, let's start working, the boss is coming back, right? That happens in our workplaces or in the classrooms, and the the kids are all goofing off because the teacher went to the bathroom to make copies or something. And, oh, no, the teacher's coming back. You have the person watching out in the hall to see the teacher coming back. and This is more than just your teacher coming back or the boss coming back into the room. This is the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, to whom belongs all dominion and honor, that's the one who is coming. That is the master who is coming. And what a sobering motivational call that should be for us. This is the one who is coming to judge. And I wonder if that thought for you today is one of joy and expectation Or is it one of dread and fear? And the next question would be, what what does that say about your salvation? Do you really know him? Or do you not? Are you far from him? Are you in just a place of doubting and questioning? Let today be the day that you make that certain. Jesus is your Lord. So that that proclamation can be one of joy. An expectation. He is coming. Will you greet him as your Savior and King on that day? Or will you see him as your judge and your executioner? The Bible tells us to flee to Jesus now. Flee to him now for refuge. So that on that day, you will not feel the need to flee from him. The Lord is coming. Let us obey and serve and follow him now. Number three, take hold of true life. Paul says in verse 17 that some will hear this message again and again and again and again and will still refuse. He says in verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. As for the rich, he says. Now, why Paul wants to hone in on the rich, that seems to be the the nature of some of the false teaching, the, the greed, the discontentment, the need for earthly gain and money, whatever it is that's driving part of Paul's things here. But he says, watch out now, those who are rich in this present age, that you don't hear the gospel, that you don't hear the word, that you don't hear this command to obey and think because of your riches or because of your notoriety or your fame or your importance or your wealth and whatever it is, that that call does not apply to you. Paul says you ought not to be haughty, looking down, arrogant, prideful, As if your riches and your wealth and your earthly goods set you up on some sort of pedestal that you can look down on other people from or look down on God from. Paul says, be careful. He says there's a misplaced hope here. He says they have placed their hope in the uncertainty of riches. It's a misplaced hope. 
because it's uncertain, it's unsure, and in the end, it's all going to burn anyway. And so Paul says, why place your hope there? And the uncertainty of riches, that is a misplaced hope, but there's also a misplaced labor. He says, who strive, who work, verse 18, who do good to be rich, what ought they to do? They are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul has warned us in the previous verses about discontentment, about greed, about chasing after earthly goods and earthly wealth. Remember we said, Jesus, uh, you cannot serve two masters. You can't have two lords. You're either going to serve God or you're going to serve money. You cannot serve both. So will you today serve the sovereign one who is immortal, who dwells in unapproachable light, Paul says, or will you serve your riches? Will you serve the things of this earth? Paul reiterates that true riches are not earthly. There's no lasting hope or riches there. Paul says true riches, verse 18, are found in good works. True riches are found in holiness. True riches are found in generosity. True riches are found in Christ-likeness. So if you choose today to flee to run after and to pursue earthly riches, you are building a foundation that is shaky, that is faulty, that is full of cracks and will one day crumble right underneath you. But today, if you will flee to Jesus, if you'll run to righteousness, if you'll pursue good works to be rich in them, Paul says in verse 19, you are building a good, solid foundation that will stand on the day of judgment. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 6, store up your treasure in heaven. You have your treasure on earth where moth and rust corrupts and the thief comes in to steal. But if you will store up your treasure in heaven, nothing can get to it. And then he ends that section, Matthew 6, 21 For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What does your heart tell you this morning? What does your treasure tell you this morning about what you're running after, what you're pursuing, what you're fleeing after? Is eternal life yours this morning? Have you repented of your sins and come to faith in Christ and pursuing righteousness and pursuing good works? Or are you trying to lay your foundation in this world, right here, right now, with money, with earthly goods, with your wealth? On that day, Jesus says, Paul reiterates, it will all be destroyed. It will all be consumed by God's unquenchable fire. And the question for you is, will you be consumed with it? Because if that's your foundation, if that's where you've decided to live... If that's the kingdom you've decided to be part of, when it is destroyed, when it is burned up, will you be burned up as well? Or is your everything in Jesus? So that when he comes, listen, so that when he comes, it will be your very life that is coming. 
As Paul said in Colossians 3, verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears. Will you think just for a minute about what that short little phrase entails? That your life is not bound up in your riches. Your life is not bound up in this world. Your life is not bound up in your notoriety or your fame or your career or your job or any earthly thing. That's not what your life is. But Christ is your life. So when he appears, Paul says, it will be your very life that is appearing in heaven. Is that the way you understand Jesus? Is that the way you understand eternal life? Is that the way you understand his second coming? That your very life is coming? Because it might just tell you where your heart is. It might just tell you where your hope is this morning. Paul says, make sure that's your foundation so that you may take hold of that which is truly life. Lastly, today in our conclusion, Paul says, verse 20, and this is the second vocative calling out of Timothy, Oh, Timothy. You can hear Paul's passion in that, can't you? Relatively to this point, it's been didactic, instructional. Do this, do this, put this in order. Get this right, do this, don't do this. These last verses have been very personal, very intimate to Timothy. You, oh man of God, and now you, oh Timothy. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babbling contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Paul sums it up, doesn't he? Guard the truth, avoid false teaching, and warn those who follow after it. Steer clear, stay the course, watch out for the rocks. And this isn't just a charge for Timothy, though. This is Paul writing to him. This is a charge for us. The Holy Spirit says the same thing to you today. Guard the gospel. Avoid false teaching. Warn those who follow false teaching. Set your hope and your mind on Christ. This is the fight. This is the war. And the same question that Paul asked Timothy, are you fighting it, Timothy? The Spirit asks you today, are you fighting in this fight? These are dark, uncertain days. You do not even have to turn on the news to know that we are in a growing War, a growing, ever-increasing conflict between truth and falsehood. Sometimes between common sense and insanity. And listen this morning, if you don't hear anything else from me today, listen to this. A nominal, casual, cultural, familiar Christianity will not survive. Your nominal, cultural, casual, come-as-you-may, leave-as-you-may Christianity will not survive this war because it's not real. You cannot fight in this fight with that kind of faith. It's not enough anymore to say the stuff, to do the stuff, to check the boxes, to play the part when the enemy is at the gate. 
The enemy is on the offensive. The enemy is attacking. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, the devil is prowling. He's roaming about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And what are we to do in light of that? Be watchful. Be sober-minded. Stand and fight. And so Paul, I think, would ask us this morning, I think the Holy Spirit is asking you, are you fighting? Or are you just an easy meal? Are you fighting the devil? Or are you just an easy target for him? I charge you today to stand and fight the good fight. Listen, for your family, for your church, for your community, for your own personal holiness. Eternity itself is in the balance. I wonder if you understand that the stakes are that high. Church, do you know your captain today? Look to him. Hear him. Obey him. He has fought and won the war for you. The question for you today is, are you fighting for him? He calls you now to fight, and he gives you what you need. Look at the very last phrase here. Grace be with you. Oh, and his grace is sufficient for you. His grace is sufficient for this war. His grace is sufficient for this race. Grace be with you. Are you fighting today for yourself, for your family, for your church, for your community, for the lost? I invite you today, if you're an unbeliever, maybe you've been toying around with Christianity, and maybe Jesus is who he says he is, maybe he's not. Jesus calls you to make a decision today. You're not going to have it all figured out before you come to Jesus. You're not going to clean yourself up enough to be able to come to Jesus. He says, come now, and then we'll sort that out. Come now, and then you can learn. Come now, and then you can grow. So if you're an unbeliever here today, I invite you to come, repent of your sins, and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. To take hold of that which is truly life. And if you're a believer here today, which I assume most of us are, this is no time to sit back and relax with our arms folded and, to do, and just enjoy the show. This is time to be equipped, to get the weapons, to get your gear for war, and then to stand and to fight. Fight the good fight of the faith. It's what Paul tells this young pastor so long ago. Well, it's what the Spirit is telling us even today. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.